You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Jonathan Brink and Rich Gillette are the hosts of the Living in the Matrix podcast. They reached out to me for an interview a while back on their podcast, and I really appreciated that because my spiritual focus is to help heal the Christian faith from its Western infernalist wound by promoting a holistic picture of a grace that both saves alone and goes to all. And it was really affirming for me that these two sincerely questioning minds found some resonance with what I was talking about. So let me tell you a little little bit about John and Rich. They are both self-confessed theology nerds who like to get out into the weeds. If there is one word which I would pick in order to describe Jonathan and Rich, it is curious. They like to turn over philosophical stones and theological stones and quantum physics stones and metaphysical stones and find out what surprises lay underneath them. They are explorers who like to stretch the bounds of their own imaginations. And if you listen to their podcast very long, you'll discover that they are pretty much open to talking to anyone they find interesting. I find that their podcast pushes me beyond some of my own comfort zones, but always leaves me with something interesting to ponder. In terms of the characters in the Matrix movie, I think of Jonathan and Rich as Link and Tank, piloting the Nebuchadnezzar through the Matrix, testing to see what is real and what is illusion. In temperament, Jonathan is a little more on the progressive side, and Rich is a little more on the conservative side. And together they enjoy the creative tension that brings to their friendship and their explorations of the human condition. Welcome, Jonathan and Rich, to the Grace Saves All podcast. That was phenomenal. Wow. What an intro. Wow. What an intro. <laughs> Thank you. Well thought uh, enjoyed- out, well executed. Yeah. Well, I just enjoyed it. I looked up all the characters on the uh, that were in the Matrix, and I was thinking, who are the names of the pilots of the Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> and it's Link and Tank. And I thought, that's perfect. Link and Tank. So I love that's it. great. That is awesome. <laughs> but is you awesome. may think you may think of yourself differently. Do you have other characters that you more, maybe more identify with in the Matrix? Go ahead, Rich. I was going to say, I hadn't really thought about that much, but I do identify with that description. You know, I, I feel like um, they're kind of like, we're, we're a supporting cast in, in, the, in, the, in the search for truth, right? And we're just trying to um, effectively engage and, and get there, right? Get from point A to point B in one way or another, right? And so yeah. um, by, by hook or by crook, right? So yeah, I like it. I, so when I saw the movie The Matrix, I immediately resonated with Neo because that's where I've always sort of been heading in my life. And it just clicked with me. But I love your, uh, your choice because that's how you see me. And I, in terms of what Rich and I have really always just want to do, especially with a podcast, is to just be good people that love and do creative things. And this podcast was really kind of a centered around our discussions that we've been having for 15 years. And, but our real desire is to have these interesting conversations with other people. Cause we've, 
we've talked about absolutely everything <laughs> theologically. Yeah. <laughs> and, but there's other ways of seeing the world. And the idea that I always had, that I always pitched to Rich is, what if grace were completely true? What, where can't we go? So that, that, that's sort of the framework of how I've always pictured it is, yeah. is if grace is really true, if Jesus came to establish and reveal grace, what would it actually look like to take that on completely? And is there any boundaries? And I don't think there is anymore. Well, you know, I, as long I guess as I'm leading in love, it's, we're good. I guess I thought of, uh, of you as a, since you're, you 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 sort of seem to be it's not like one is the captain and the other is the is the co-pilot it's like you're both like working together and you're piloting this ship and if you get in your podcast you're taking us around and introducing us to all these um like i said before it, some of your guests are sort of beyond the type of folks that i would think of, about talking to and yep. I quite frankly wouldn't even know how to have conversations with some of the folks that you talk to, but I kind of get to listen into it. And sometimes they say stuff that's like, man, okay, that's a little far out there for me. But then on the other hand, I always come away with something like, okay, I might not put it exactly that way, but that leaves me with something interesting to, to think about. Well, I mean, a perfect example is um, I would say Whitney Woodcock um, is uh, somebody who claims to be a channeler of the Akashic records, right? So this is something that you think about when you watch the movie Interstellar. Um, have you seen the movie Interstellar um, with uh, McConaughey? Yeah. And yeah. he's in this giant library in space in the singularity, and he's trying to get in touch with his daughter. So what, what's ironic about that, I naturally thought of that visual when she's describing this. And she's basically saying, I can, I'm clairvoyant and I can bring in information from the universe to people who need that. And she said, and I said, well, do you think we're all clairvoyant? And she actually said, yes. And this, then I went back to my Stephen King book, The Stand, and he talks about this ability for people to have some clairvoyance. Now, mother's intuition, a mother can sense sometimes when something's wrong even though she's not in the same room with her, her child, there's a connection there that you can't take away. So even though we go outside the bounds of some of the things we talk about, right, when we start to realize what science is and what the quantum field now finally realizes is this kind of pure consciousness, we can really start to have these conversations. The idea of things being off limits or being, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Um, starts to lose real traction if you're trying to search for truth. And, and everybody loves Augustine um, in, in the Protestant religion until they realize that he's for baptism of the remission of sins and believes in purgatory, right? He's praying for his mother who had died, and he's hoping that Satan doesn't sneak her off and, 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 and trick her in the afterlife, right? And so it's like, oh, yeah, I love C.S. Lewis, except for his theistic evolution and his possible, you know, universalistic tendencies, right? So People get to pick and choose all the time. So how do we come up with it? Hey, guys, let, let's let's throw it out there, have a discussion, see where it bounces, and agree to disagree on, on aspects we don't agree on. You know. Well, okay. So so you guys, it's interesting to me that you you both grew up. Um, Jonathan, I think you grew up Baptist. Rich, I think you grew up Catholic. But Correct. you sort of grew up in in traditions that I'll just put it this way: already had everything figured out. <laughs> I know. And they were just trying to get you in the right mode so that you could go to heaven after you died and also help take some other people to heaven, uh, you know, as well. And um, 
for some reason, you both, um, there was something about that experience that ultimately didn't sit well with you, felt constricting and even traumatizing to you in a certain way. And so for both of you, this journey isn't just, hey, I'm curious about this, but it's also kind of a journey of trying to some, get, get some healing from something that you both experienced in a traumatic way. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Jonathan, well, I was going to let you go first because um, when I looked, I, I, I chatted with a lot of um, Catholics when we were going to this family camp. It was an intervarsity Christian fellowship in Catalina Island. And I spoke with a lot of people who were altar boys who were fully deep into their religion and felt betrayed and, and almost like they they were living a lie. Some people consider the Catholic Church a cult, actually. I, I don't. Um, so I don't actually have trauma in that regard, David, in terms you of- You had a good um, experience. I had a relatively good, I had healthy roots in Catholicism, but I think what those roots in Catholicism did is the Catholics didn't take the Bible as literally as as the Protestants. And that's maybe why, or at least they took it from a different framework, right? They believed that a thousand, like zeros mean like infinity in, in ancient Near Eastern literature, right? Whereas a dispensationalist says 144,000, you know, Vir- male virgins or, you know, 1,000 years. And, and so yeah, I there think was, my there was more in, in the Catholic way of thinking with the magisterium, there's a, there's a longer, richer kind of experience of interpretation and understanding. Correct. And it, tradition. it's a broader, it's a broader tradition. Whereas in the, for the fundamentalist uh, evangelical tradition, it tends to be much more, much more literalistic. Mm-hmm. Contra- correct. So go ahead, Jonathan. I think you've got a better story yeah. than I do in terms of overcoming the, the, that traumatic stuff. Yeah. Well, he, here's how I want to define it because I've I've shared on my podcast and when we talked on with you is I grew up under one of the first mega churches in California, probably in the United States. And so when I was in junior high, we had 400 people. So the environment that I was in was incredible. Wait, like, when I you was, were in junior high, you had 400 people in the church? You know, in my junior high youth group. (laughs) Holy cow. Wait a second. 400 people people in your junior high youth group. Yes. We were Saddleback before Saddleback existed. Okay. Yeah. And they had bought this building that this computer company and we were, we were even high tech. It was like we did, we broadcast our church services and we had at one point the highest, I believe it was 7,500 people. And this is in 1975. The glory years were 75 through 79 in the 70s. And, but the dark side of that is what I, I don't blame my church in any way. I blame the narrative. And the narrative is, is that you better be good on your own accord or you're going to hell. That's, a, that's just the narrative that, and especially in the Baptist world, was very prominent and you learn to fear it. And so then as I shifted more towards an evangelical background, as I got into junior high, uh, it, I had both, I had this rich diversity of, um, discipleship because that's how they grew. They truly Mm -hmm. discipled people by putting them in spaces where they could practice love. That was how we grew so fast. That's just, it was an explosion. And, but on the other side of that is you better be good because that's how they controlled you. And to you, so don't get out of line. And in hindsight, looking back on that, it 
was traumatizing. Like, I think the concept of hell needs to be retired. Mm. It really does. And that will allow us to bring it into what it really is, which is a current state of reality for people who don't judge themselves as good. That's the bridge line. If I now judge myself as evil, I'm in hell. If I judge myself as good, I'm in this concept of heaven. And that's the dividing line. And that's what I saw a lot of my friends living in a space of hell. Because what happens is, is that you focus on not doing something, you end up recreating it. It's called focusing on the negative. And we were taught, don't do this. Don't do this. Sex, drugs, all the things that were taboo. And in hindsight, we weren't given capacity for the grace story that I think was prominent, that was lost. Well, let's move. Let's part, but miss the grace. Let's move to that grace part because there was some mm-hmm. point at which you both seemed to realize that grace needed to play a bigger part in your theological construction. Mm-hmm. And so, how did that? How did that journey go for both of you? I, I grew up with a mom who was truly grace filled. Like that was her operating system. And so I got lucky in that regard. And so grace was always a narrative that we always talked about. I remember, I can't remember who the theologians, but there have been books on uh, grace that hit the marketplace that were big. Can't remember. Um, And the idea was always in the back of my head because that's, that was the carrot you know, but the, the cloak was, Hey, don't be bad. And I think at some point I realized you can't just live on that moralistic structure. Grace needs to be part of the equation. And so it's learning how to forgive yourself. And cause I think that's a central part of the grace is the embrace of grace is you live, we live with ourselves 24 seven. We never get away from ourselves. Even when we sleep, we have to learn how to forgive ourselves. And that's, that, that was where I was. I was traumatized when I was 23 at Biola University. I overdosed on acid. And I went into a three-month depression. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because it, it was essentially, it's where I think I uh, saw unity for the first time in my life. In hindsight, now I realize that's when I saw the unified field. And I was so overwhelmed by it because my, I, I, the image I had in my head was I went into the Garden of Eden and I took a bite of the fruit. And um, my roommate who was on it with me saw me and I raised my arms in like I was having a glorious moment and I immediately crumbled. And from that moment on, I went into a depression for three months. That and really that lasted, I would say, 20 years. And I it was a survival mode. I went into an immediate survival mode because I had convinced myself I had committed an unforgivable Unpardonable sin. Unpardonable. Yeah. 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 And and what I recognize now is, you know, after talking to people like Sean, Sean helped me realize this about myself. I created that reality for myself. Because I made all of the judgments that were happening in my head at the time of any moment of my life. And so what's really happening is 
I am creating the narrative that someone that I am lost and I have to save myself. And I do that through love. I restore myself through loving myself. And once I started loving myself, I started going up the frequency and started seeing hope and bliss and mm -hmm. actual love and realizing, holy crap. And I and then and then it goes to another level. Once I started living up here and realizing there is a picture in your head that looks like the kingdom of God and your thoughts start to truly change. And all of a sudden I can see entire generations being restored. None of it's happening, but it's here in my head. That's what I see all the time now. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's where grace really came in. What if grace is completely true? Yeah. What if, what's the implications of your book, David? That, that was really where grace led me is if love is really true, if what Jesus actually was doing is establishing truth, that grace is true, how is life really supposed to change? And I think it's supposed yeah. to change radically. Well, I think, I think what my book did, what my book did for you is it didn't tell you something you didn't know. It just, mm. it just put it together in a way that's like, oh, that, that's a good way to, this is a good way to think about it from a Christian point of view. Yes. Um, and it, you know, that's the Bible and the church history and all that kind of stuff in it. And so I appreciated that. Then I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really tell you something you didn't know. I just put it in a, in a way that, um, that hung together, um, in, in a way that, uh, just resonated with kind of what, where you already were. Yeah, yeah. Here's how I described it on my podcast is I could always feel grace, but I couldn't put all the pieces together in my head. Your book, your book put all the pieces together in my head. That's yeah, what happened. the pieces, the pieces were already all there. Yeah, they were all there. Well, I would say probably you thought of subject subjects that I hadn't thought of and uh -huh, of it was so elegantly complete because I felt it was so accessible. The way you wrote about grace was accessible. And that's what I want for my kids. I want, I want a grace that impacts people's lives. That's really mm -hmm. what I want. Well, and, Rich, and David, yeah. What, yeah um, well, to go into the, um, the, the grace experience, I, I think I saw it more intellectually when I started reading J.I. Packer. He wrote Catholics and Evangelicals Together. John Stott, Eugene Peterson, as you start to read these authors, they got older and older, they started realizing more of a big tent thing, right? So, you know, you think about Richard Rohr, you think about the likes of um, Brian McLaren, and you start to realize that the world is a lot bigger and needs to be a little bit more inclusive. We talked about Greg Boyd, right? So intellectually is where I, I felt it. I've always also, David, I've told um, Jonathan this, I've been told this by a woman going to Bethel, uh, you know, Bethel Church up in Reading, she goes, Rich, God has your head. He wants your heart, right? So I, I've been working on how to bring in the grace to my heart. I, I've recognized, especially when I read William Barclay, I'm like, how can a guy who has such a beautiful knowledge of, of Greek and the scriptures, and when I read his um, one-page summary of why I'm a convinced universalist, he goes to origin, he talks about the kenosis, about the pruning, and I'm like, this guy gets it. He's he loves the Lord. Yeah, he, Colossus. He, he, 
Absolutely. Yeah, yes. Pruning. Yes. Oh, co- Colossus. That's right. Colossus, yeah. not kenosis. We know what kenosis yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You've got the, you've got the uh, MDiv. I do not. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, when I started like realizing this and I started realizing that, you know, in, in terms of, of, of where God wants to be and how, how he's able to en- encompass more things, it made a lot more sense. Right. And that's so, I started seeing that. And now, of course, I probably took a little bit of a pause um, because in my early upbringing, not being a newbie into the Protestant world, uh, after I left Catholicism and became an evangelical, I was under more reform bent, right? So I was studying Piper and, and Driscoll and going to Desiring God. And so there was a period of time for about seven to 10 years where I was apologetically like with Greg Kokel and I'd be loving William Lane Craig and those folks that are you know, what was really sad about that is I was so busy at church and doing this and that and, and, and defending the faith that I really didn't have my heart in the right place. It was all these intellectual ascents. And looking back and where I am today and just trying to focus on myself better, get better, be more mindful and be more listening, I think I'm a more loving father and, and husband than I am today than I was in those best well, what, days. When, what look I, at this guy. Yeah. What I say sometimes is, in a way, I'd rather have a conversation with a Calvinist than with just kind of a run-of-the-mill Baptist, because if I'm talking to a Calvinist, they at least know they're doing theology. You know, That's true. You know, they have a theological system, and they know they're trying to work it out, and you can have like a theological discussion with them. But sometimes when I talk to somebody that's more like a regular like evangelical that's like, well, I don't do, I don't do theology. I just read the Bible. I just believe the Bible. And it's like, then mm-hmm. I have to say, well, no, actually you are putting, <laughs> you are making some, you're making interpretive decisions. You're putting things together uh, in a certain way. Uh, but, okay. So what I'd like to do with you guys now is I've got, this is, I want to, I haven't done this with anybody before. I, 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 uh, I thought what I'd like to do is like, if I got to ask, you know, just sit down with somebody and just ask them 20 questions and to see kind of what that would do. Uh, what that would reveal about their theological position. So you guys are my guinea. You guys are my guinea pigs. I haven't okay, done this go. before. But you said <laughs> you said we really like getting out into the weeds and doing theology. So here are my twenty questions. Okay. And um, so, um, how do you want us to answer? Uh, well, we got twenty questions. So kind of you know, give me um, you know not not a full page, maybe a maybe a paragraph. Uh, you want us try to keep... answer them or just take yeah. turns? Well, either, yeah, yes, if, if you feel like you have something to say. I'd like to get each of you on these. Okay, so question number one, how do you understand the character of God? Love. It's the only one necessary. But I'll expand on that because uh, he's doing that. Yeah. I think love is the simplest form that everybody is searching for. So love so, is where I focus. Okay, Go love. Ahead. I'd like to defer to C.S. Lewis, if I'm not mistaken, who says if if the Bible and the character of God are at odds, I go with the character of God, right? Because the character of God is loving, is is all is omniscient, all powerful, right? 
And I, I've go, I go back to the idea that ontologically, I mean, we, you talked about this in the podcast, that God is both just and he's love or loving, if you would. And you've got to have both of those because there are people who will be tormented, suffered until they finally come to the loving arms of the Lord. So there has to be some form of justice there. But again, ontologically, God is love, which is a noun, which is ontology. God is described as just or as full of grace. And so I think that the the love part of it is a stronger, um, you know, a stronger de- depiction. Okay. Uh, question number two, what intentions does God have towards persons? I'm going to sound like a broken record to love, to validate, to approve, to show worth. Yeah. Um, you know, love is the works of love. M. Scott Peck wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. I think it was, and he says the love is the works of love. And I think things that help us go into action, if God can help us to be action-oriented in those bits of love, that's what I would say. Let me put a little finer point on this question then. What do you think the intention of God is with regard to the final end of each person's destiny? What What does God ultimately want for each person? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, if, if, if we if we go down the universalistic bent, obviously, he, he, he desires restoration, right? I believe that God uh, desires restoration of all things, right? Garden from the Garden of Eden will be restored, right? Um, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, the, the new Jerusalem coming down is a cube, right? It's my understanding. It's a cube, right? This is like, and it's, it's all, it's all oneness. So I, I believe that he believes in a restoration of all things. I just haven't put a lot of detailed thought into what does that look like individually, right? He knows that the he knows our our right the number of hairs on our head. So um, clearly, he knows who we were before we were knitted in our womb, right? He knows these things, and so um, I don't know. So God, okay, like the, like yeah. for you, would you think that God has an ultimate intention in mind for you ultimately? I believe so, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, well, let me, let me, let's go on. How passionate is God in regard to God's intentions towards each person? I mean, is it something like, I hope it happens or no, I'm like, I am very intent on this, like on the scale of intensity, how into this final end is God? I think God, uh, you know, there's a fine line between C.S. Lewis's, you know, you die and you wake up and go, oh, okay, when you get to the kingdom of God, and Alan Watts's dream of life idea that God is dreaming and creating scalable experiences through each individual. So that's a spectrum. And I think. I think we're all in on it. And I think at the end of the day, the only possibility where God could win, if God is love, is everyone is restored. And God has no time limit because time doesn't technically exist. We're all unified anyways. I think it's a, in some respects, it's a game. That's, but it's also, we're in on the game. As CS David, would present. yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Brendan Manning? He wrote a book called The Furious yeah. Longing of God. Do you do you feel like that's the kind of angle we've got there? That that well, pursuit. Uh, I guess uh, really the uh, 
I'm an only child. And my mom is very intent on my well-being. I mean, scary. <laughs> uh, she really, really uh, wants the absolute best for me in every way. And I was just, I remember just thinking one time, I wonder if God could be more, could love me with the greater intensity than my mom. Mm -hmm. And what I finally intensity? came to. Is that yeah. what you want more yeah, of? And, well, I mean, like, um, if I was in a bad situation, my mom would know about it and she would do everything in her, everything in her power, including giving her own life to rescue yeah. me. Yes. Without even thinking about it. Agreed. And I started thinking to myself, can, if, if that's if, like, if that's my mom's level, can God get over that? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, and, and I finally decided that what it, what that is, is it's the same thing mm -hmm. that, that what I am experiencing through my mother is a human being who is channeling the level of love that God has for me. It's a perfect love. So they are the, they're the same type of, they're the same type of thing, but it took me a while to believe that God could love me as much as my, as much as my mom does and want and, and, and not be, my mom just would not be satisfied, is not satisfied unless she knows that I'm getting, like if I went into the hospital or something, she would have to know I was getting the absolute best care. She would be, it's just an intent. It's a perfect kind of love. I think that's written into the DNA of a woman. Men don't experience that level of love for their children. Women do automatically. It's written into them. And I think part of that is, the one person in our life who shows us what Jesus did is our mother. She's willing to die for us. That's the beauty of it. It's the mama bear quality. I totally get it. I had one of those mothers that uh, my mom was, she deeply wanted to love me in a very positive way. We had a great family. And uh, I think at the end of the day, that's what God wants. God wants a family that's unified and um, that, that it's not, I want to control everybody. It's I want individuals participating in love together in the kingdom. And I think it's possible. Okay. Let me move to the next question. How do you understand the sovereignty of God? I'll go first on that. I think that, um, that's one thing that's held true through the the Calvinistic upbringing, right? Um, and, and I think it, why it's so important for you in terms of it's and or both, right? God is, you know, does grace save all and does grace, is grace alone save, right? And so I think having a God who is kind of in control, who knows what's going on in the universe um, as a sovereign God, who ultimately draws us to himself, who doesn't allow a stray soul to be more stupid than his love, right? I think that's, that's very powerful. <laughs> doesn't allow a stray soul to be more stupid than his love. I like that. <laughs> there you go. I've, 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 the, 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 the thing that just kills me, the, the incoherence of this God who not only creates, you know, Adam and Eve and, and allows them to sin, but, and not only, or, 
ordains it, he wills it to happen and then would store up wrath. For me, that just I don't know how I lived with those kinds of conundrums for such a long period of time. But still, that same God spoken of in different light and, and, and bringing people through. Even, you know, William Lane Craig, who believes in this middle knowledge area, so it allows a little bit of freedom out there, some almost withholding of, of, of knowing that so, so that we can be truly free. I think that your angle gives it this, it's this perfect, it's the, it's the third way. It's the third way that has uh, grace saves all, uh, grace alone saves and grace goes to all. It's, it's both. And I think that, that, that pairing of the two is, is, is just perfect. All right. Uh, Jonathan, what do you think about the sovereignty of God? One, we have, it's kind of an irrelevant question because we can't change anything that was actually the answer. It's like our debate about it doesn't change it. We live in a world created, not, although I think we learn to be the creators, uh, but it's got, this is the matrix. And in some ways it's like a game, some way it's like a program, like an AI, and what we're experiencing here is ultimately at the end of our lives, we're like, what is the point of leaving a legacy when you die? Do we really need our current lives when we die? Why do we need to remember that? That's kind of a tangent, but I think ultimately God, we're in the game. We're in the life. We're in the kingdom. We got to make the most of it. I guess what I when when I think about sovereignty, what I think is, if somebody is if if God is sovereign, then there's not anything that's going to stop God from uh, finally accomplishing what God wants to do. There's not like God is going to say, "Well, I wanted to do this, but somebody stopped me, or something stopped me." So sovereignty, that, I think that's one of the things that uh, I in, ended up enjoying from the Calvinist tradition was. Mm-hmm. The idea that God would have these eternal decrees, and whatever the decree was, God being sovereign, meant that that decree would finally be realized because nothing is going to stop God ultimately from getting what God wants. So it all just kind of comes down to what does God want? David, you just clarified my entire book. What is God's decree in Genesis 1? It's all good. All of it. There is no exception. And then the rest, is it working out back to that reality? I think yeah. that's possible. Yeah, that God was, wins. Uh... Love wins. Everyone, like you said, it's everyone's locked in prison from the inside. God's just waiting, going, okay, love has time. So Okay, well, let's, let's go to this. Here's question five. Does God know the end from the beginning? Does God know what the ultimate outcome of creation will be with regard to human destiny if some will finally suffer permanent separation from God in final termination or eternal conscious torment? So does God know the end from the beginning? I think yes. I would concur. I mean, he lives in Kairos, right? He lives outside of time. So our own linear time frame, he lives outside of that, right? So he li- lives outside of that space-time continuum. So he sees what what could be there. Now, I don't know if an open theist fully believes that. And even there's a term in the Kabbalistic standpoint called Zimzum, where God creates something outside of himself that he does not know, right? Almost as a gift of love, right? I'm going to create a, a, an, an environment where I don't know what's going on. 
so that the people in there can be completely free. And so that's another kind of theological conundrum there. And I don't know if that actually gives benefit or not. Um, I, I think I'd prefer God to actually know what's going on fully. And so in your, in your opinion, yeah. kind of like with Isaiah 46, 10, you know, that God knows, God knows the end from the beginnings that would, mm-hmm. you would both kind of mm-hmm. concur with that. Yeah. It's, it's I, my, my little joke is that it's not like God sitting around in heaven and it's like, all of a sudden it's like, Hey, Hey, look, Bill, Bill made it. What do you know? I didn't think Bill was going to make it, but look, there he is. Well, I'm surprised because I didn't think Bill was going to make it. You know that God is not going to be surprised finally with the outcome of creation and who's there and who's not there or if all are going to be there. This is not some kind of um, that, that God is not just sort of rolling the dice with creation in some way that God actually knows the end from the beginning. So, but just to, let's play a little devil's advocate here, though. So when, um, I don't know if we even brought this up, as Moses is coming off of the mountain, he sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf, and he has an argument with God, and God's like, I'm going to take him out. And Moses is like, dude, you just rescued him from Egypt. Imagine they're going to laugh at you if you just smite them all down right now. And God's like, all right, wait a minute. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. Let's, let's hold that off for the time being. Is that anthropomorphizing what's going on there? God truly did know, it's, it, it, or, or Greg Boyd would say that's actually literal. That's actually God changing his mind based on uh, on, a, on, on inter- yeah, now inter- I inter- went to I went to a more progressive seminary, and whenever we got to that kind of stuff, what they said was this is something that you sometimes find in the Bible called anthropomorphism, yeah. where God is portrayed as like a, as somebody who doesn't know what's going on. And like, for instance, so if you take that Garden of Eden story, literally, what, so God didn't know where yep. they were? Where are you? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, but what I have taken from that story is I have thought to myself, uh, there is a biblical example of of people challenging God to be God. It's like, wait a second, you can't, I've thought to myself, you know, if 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 we somehow get to the the end and we find out that you know congratulations somehow we made it but there's some group of people who didn't i think there would be several of us who would stand up and say well hold on if you knew this was always going to be the the case you know that's not fair aren't you shouldn't you be better than that you, you know you you knew they were going to come to a bad end you know shouldn't you have we can't give up we shouldn't, you should do better than, I think there would be a lot of us that would look at God if that was the situation and say, God, you should be better than this. And in my imagination, I think God would want us to do that. If that was, the, that would, God would be expecting us. I think God would be disappointed. It's like, okay, welcome everybody. Uh, all of you made it to heaven. Of course, there's a whole bunch of people in hell. And I think if that happened, I think God would be a little bit disappointed if none of us said, well, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> this does not seem to be a fitting end of the story, given your character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it doesn't mix with love. And I think ultimately, if we really think about it, back to your mother's traits, the very first people who are leaving heaven to go to hell are mothers. They're not going to leave their kids there, ever. That's not what love does. And that that's the conundrum of at, at what point does humanity lead the way and i think jesus showed the way it's all inclusive it's there 
there is no way love wins unless everybody gets in. I think it would be, I don't want to say it, it would be exactly a mutiny <laughs> if, that, if that happened, but I think there would be more people than there might be imagined who would not, who, what my experience has been when I've, you know, when I have shared people about my, my Christian universalism, you know, most have uh, been surprised that a lot of people have always thought that God was probably a little better than the preachers were saying, mm-hmm. you know, and when I say what I'm thinking, a lot of times they'll say, well, that's pretty much what I think too. But, you know, preachers have to say what they have to say, but in there, that there's something like we know what love is. And so if we got to some kind of ultimate eschatological horizon and we were fully illumined and we saw a situation that didn't reflect ultimate love, it seems like there would be a sizable number of us who would just, you know, I don't think I'd be alone in saying, hold on here. Just doesn't yeah. seem to fit with your, remember that Moses story about, you know, bringing, you bring, <laughs> you rescued these people and now you're going to destroy them. It, it seems, it seems like we're in a similar situation here. David, do how, something do you, about this? how do you define love? In that instance, you said you we know what love is. How do you define love? Well, I mean, it's just it's just ultimate regard for another another person's well being. I don't think it's that I don't think it's that complicated. I mean, it's not that hard to think that if you love somebody, you wouldn't want them to be you know in some kind of dungeon somewhere miserable forever. <laughs> it's just that's pretty I, basic, you well, know. That's really, the the. Garden of Eden really for me was a clarification of what love actually was. So when I experienced it, I realized, oh, okay, I believe love is the judgment of good. It's the polarity on the good side. And I think right. also, doing, go ahead. Yeah. Well, love also would not be satisfied. You know, it's, it's love not only wants to rescue, but mm-hmm. love also wants to see you finally become who you, who you are created to be. So love not only wants to rescue, it, it wants to perfect. It wants to, it wants, it wants the absolute best for you in every possible way. That's what your mom wanted. Yeah. That's exactly what, that's why the definition of a, of a storming mother is really one of the best visuals, but we're so afraid of that image in Christianity. It's almost sad because we, Christianity is dominated by masculinity and we don't understand how dysfunctional that is. That's probably one of the biggest dysfunctions that the evangelical church ever propagated. Well, I wonder, it's interesting to me that the more the evangelical church is sort of drilling down on the eternal torment doctrine, Mm -hmm. that another thing that's going along with that is making sure that women don't preach Mm -hmm. or teach. Because they would never preach it. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want would. That, Yeah, that nurturing, you know, that 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 that, that in sort of right. intuitive nurturing side would be it. It might rebel against that. I, I wouldn't. There's something that I think fits together with all of that. Well, I think what's happening is, and, and the masculine is dominant responsibility. The feminine is dominant compassion, and they compete for each other on their opposite sides of the same coin. And I think we cannot allow the the gospel to be strictly masculine. It can't be. 
It has to include compassion. And I think that's a big reason why people like Buddhism. It's because Christianity doesn't have much compassion to it. Well, the Western I mean, infernalists. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the early church, right? Uh, the, the, um, you know, the early church, they were they were the ones um, taking care of the widows, right? They were the ones taking care of the desolate and the, the kids oh, being yeah. dropped off in, in heaps in, in Rome. Because so, the women they, got love immediately. They got it. Yeah. I do. I think they got it. My mom got it. Yeah. Okay, question number six. Are human beings at an essential level oriented rationally towards God and towards the good? Do human beings have as our transcendental end an ultimate fulfillment which can only be realized in union with God? Are our hearts truly restless until they find their rest in God? What do you guys think? Rich, you want to take this one? So the first part of the question was, are we bent towards good, right? It's this Pelagius kind of thing. I, um, you know, there, there's, that's a lot to unpack too, by the way, David. Um, <laughs> all right. That's the one I was going to answer. Do you have yeah. a good answer, Rich? Because I, I want to tackle that one and you can have the rest. Um, yeah. I think the answer is yes, because here's why. We, we're now understanding how, uh, the neuroscience works, how your brain works, like at an, at an electronic level, at an energetic level. Now it, it's, we understand the brain and at birth, a child is predisposed to two things. It's environment through its parents and it's DNA through its parents. This is the old story. The, the DNA is the old story that they're inheriting biologically, but it's also being reinforced through environment through the parents. And whatever way the parent trains the child is how they will go. If you reinforce good, the child will have a dominant narrative of good because the brain learns exactly the same as AI. It's simply pattern recognition. That's all it is. And yeah. once we understand that, we can change that narrative. And that's why I think if, if we take Jesus' story of grace and start with grace, like start a child at the very beginning going, you're completely free. You are completely loved. What would that do to a child? We already know it would make them flourish to the nth degree. My wife's a fourth grade teacher. All you have to do in education is love a child and they will flourish. So that's, yeah. I think the answer is absolutely it's possible. But we have a pessimistic approach that says no as a narrative in Christianity. So okay. one of the things I was thinking about naturally, because I've always been a little more pragmatic in this regard, Jonathan. Um, and if you look at San Francisco right now, mm -hmm. the city's boarded up. There's yeah. uh, there's there are tweets every day that, that that's people talk about fifteen thousand dollars of equipment being stolen from their car and that the cops don't even show up anymore. And you're hearing about this all over the country. In New York, people actually are afraid for their mm -hmm. safety. The question I have is, if those individuals, I mean, let's take COVID out of the equation. Is that a function of unhealthy families not having that love focused on them? And if they had, if they did have that would things be different? Or let's going back even to Pelagius who says, listen, the idea that we're not bent towards good is stupid. Augustine, go pound sand because how are we supposed to live up to God's laws 
if we don't actually have a natural inclination to do the good? That's his question that he posited. So that's more in a vacuum. And then on the pragmatic side, if you just open up the paper today and you look what's going on in the world, it doesn't look like in general, things are looking that good in terms of where we are leaning towards as a society, especially as you look towards like Sweden, which we had a podcast gentleman on. He says they're one of the most atheistic countries in, in the world. I thought Germany was. So we're seeing the actual rejection of God um, and we're seeing riots and we're seeing a lot of unrest. So what I'm trying to get at is this is my hopeful universe. Yeah, well, I think, you know, and I think that yeah. whenever they, yeah. whenever somebody says they're rejecting God, I always think they're rejecting the Western infernalist. God. That's possible too, but they're also and embracing they're paganism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're what they're doing is they're 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 rejecting that you know that picture of the 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 judging God who is uh, in, in, for his inscrutable reasons going to throw a bunch of us into hell forever, and yeah. they're rejecting that, and they're either going into atheism, atheism, or some kind of paganism, or some of them are going into kind of a nihilism and kind of a depression. Mm. So I think depression and nihilism are, are outcomes of that. I guess, okay, so I guess what I'm getting at is the, the theological understanding of the imago dei, mm-hmm. that, that human beings bear the, that bear the image of God. And I remember one of the things that I started believing about myself, and there are certain Bible you know, passages that you can find that, that talk about that God is the father, you know, is the father of us all, and that we live and move and have our being in God. And I remember I started to believe that that God is my truest parent and that I am God's child and I bear God's, uh, God's image, that God is love. And so at my deepest core, I am oriented towards love. And mm-hmm. I can, by, um, by my environment, be be um, pushed in another direction or, or, or sort of fooled into thinking I can go a different direction, but I can even go that direction for a long time. But finally, ultimately, the longer I go in that direction, I, the way I put it is um, the longer I go against the grain of the universe, the more splinters I get. Mm. So I can it's try also to self-reinforcing. Your brain remembers that pattern and it actually writes neural pathways and kills the old ones. That's why you don't remember everything is your brain's eliminated the neural pathways that included those memories, but it keeps the ones that keep you surviving. Those are the one it always keeps. Your survival record is really important. And so we build our survival record by dealing with what's going on inside and forgiving ourselves. Well, okay. So I guess what, I guess maybe this leads to the next question, which is, um, is it possible to make a fully informed and unencumbered decision to reject union with God? If at the final eschatological horizon, we possess 100% clarity that there is zero benefit to us in refusing to enter this union, isn't it actually the freest decision of all to finally see God and the good with perfect clarity and to move ever towards it? I like how I you the answer is yeah. I believe the answer is no. Yeah, if you've got full illumination at the end, you are not going to make that decision to reject the loving arms of the Lord. You know, Hank Hanegraaff used to talk about the 
before he became Eastern Orthodox, who knows if he's become more universalistic in nature, but he used to talk about um, kicking and screaming all the way into heaven, right? And what a ridiculous um, metaphor he uses for God, you know, saving everybody. It's like, I'm going to, you know, I've given you the finger my whole life, and now I'm going to go kicking and screaming into into heaven. And I just, even at the time, I, even though I loved him, I said, that's just a ridiculous thing to say, because God is going to change in you illuminate in you, love on you, and grow you and prune you into that place of full knowledge of his love, you're not going to reject at the end, right? Well, what would you say to that, Jonathan? Well, I think the fullest expression of our humanity is to embrace who we actually are. That's why I think the unified field is important, because the unified field is the experience of that. It's, it's here in the heart. You experience the kingdom of God. And um, I think once you experience it, you automatically unlock the door because you realize, oh, I am connected. It's th- that's the power of sin as we traditionally know it is that it's an illusion of separation. But it's so powerful that it reaches it, it gets us to a point where we think we're actually in hell here on earth. Well, one of the, I guess one of the problems I kind of had with the idea that God might ultimately save everybody was what about the people that don't want that? Isn't that a denial of their free will? But, but so, the, the only way that's possible is if the illusion is still there and how does course. love respond to the illusion? I'll wait. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, the that, illusion is in time. The illusion is our perception of time. Once we get out of the illusion, we can see reality. That's what death is. It's the awakening to actuality. And so that God wouldn't, yeah, God wouldn't be, God wouldn't uh, be happy or satisfied to let the illusion finally win. Well, here's, let's go to the end game, which is what we talked about on our podcast, is Pol Pot or Hitler or Stalin. Mao. Yeah. Mao. People have killed Millions and millions, like the antithesis. Uh, what was it? Uh, Attila the Hun killed 100 million people. Or I don't remember what the number, but it was astronomical. Let's include them and ask the same question. One, we're never going to see them until they are unlocking their own prison. Once they unlock their own prison, they come to the reality that they are loved, and that's what solves the problem. So we assume they're going to be Hitler in the kingdom of God. They're not. They're, they're Hitler here on earth. We retain that memory of him. He's let that go because that's he realizes now that's not his reality. So if we get to heaven, he's not the same person. He's he's all material matter converts back to energy, and in doing so becomes part of unity. And right, that's the you, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask Rich what would he say about that about the oneness. About well, about the, the unified, uh, yeah. well, about the um, could um, could somebody you know get to that? Maybe you already talked about that. You don't think that somebody could make a fully informed uh, decision to rationally reject God in the good if 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 you know if they're unencumbered by any illusion. Yeah, I mentioned that at the very beginning. I, I answered that first. Yeah. I, I, I reject the notion that somebody would reject God after having been fully illumined, right? Fully aware of, of what's going on. I, I don't look at that as being a rejection of free will either. Okay. All right. Question um, number eight. 
Can one legitimately be Christian and understand God to be about the business of ultimately rescuing all of God's children from the clutches of sin, death, and evil? Yes. Just ask Gregory of Nyssa and Clement of Alexandria and Origen and even Athanasius. Of course you can. And I would ask David Bentley Hart, because I think he probably made the most succinct argument for it. Uh, and David, you made an incredible argument for it. Why are, it, it really comes down to why are we afraid that there will be everybody in? Like it makes God look good because God forgave everybody, including me. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting that you know, that that question that I ask you, because of the journey you've been on, didn't seem like a really hard question, but that would be a hard question. A lot of people, if you said, can you legitimately be Christian and understand God to be about the business of ultimately rescuing all of God, you know, everybody. Yeah. And for, for a lot of Christians, that would be a hard question to mm -hmm. say yes to. And I think I, to remember, I came from that background and I understand one, that theological construct of wanting to be pure and really do it well. But I think what I did that allowed, that broke the lid off is I just agreed that love is true and grace is the operating system. So my conviction levels exploded because now I'm experiencing love constantly by practicing love it becomes knowledge. And now my body begins, I begin to reset my automatic, my autonomic nervous system. I'm actually rewriting the scripts and the neural pathways in my brain so that God is actually transforming my body to love more. And once I experience that love, I realize, oh my God, this is absolutely true. And more and more and more. And that's, you know, I, I think Paul probably walked around, it took him 15 years to get onto the road. And I think he waited that long because he needed the time to really experience capacity. Because when he started his ministry, the dude was radical. He didn't shy away from love because he knew it. He didn't have faith in it. He knew it. And that's what I love. And I feel now it's like once you experience that unified field, it's it's game over. That's that's where and having that radically changed everything for me. All right. Question nine. Is it possible for God to be absolutely loving if God calls into being children whom he knows and foreknowledge will ultimately be separated from God and never experience the supremely worthwhile happiness of perfect union with God and others in eternity? I think somebody answered this, a friend of mine um, who was a camp counselor um, at uh, this campus by the sea thing. He says, God's love is not unconditional, right? We always talk about unconditional love of God. But if God requires you to do X, Y, Z to get into heaven, to be in his loving arms, then that's a conditional love. Is that not right? So I think in order to answer that question, um, I absolutely um, don't believe that God can absolutely be loving if he knows they're ultimately going to be separated. And, and I think what we're, what, what I, I think why I loved your version about being that parent is giving the loving parent um, characteristic or analogy is that we allow our children to go and to explore and to have pain and suffering and to hurt themselves in order for them to grow. But ultimately it's to draw them back into that understanding. 
So you allow things to take place. You, you, you give them the freedom to do, to explore. Uh, sometimes at the very earliest stages, you hold back, right? Just like the, I think we talked about, you know, God had to act almost with the Israelites like children. But as we move towards Jesus, when he says, go out and just be love, right? And do that. It's a lot more simple, but it's a lot more vacuous, right? So anyway, hope that answers my question, your question. All right, Jonathan, how would you, can, is it possible for God to be absolutely loving if God calls into being children whom he knows in foreknowledge will ultimately be separated from God forever? So the question presupposes that it actually will happen. So that's the conundrum. And I think the from a perspective of love, the question is not possible because it would never happen. And I think that's where I wrestle with now is from the perspective of love, that would never happen because God would never leave. You know, it's the, it's the one sheep. Jesus was all over that. Like you can't make that argument and then let Jesus tell that story. It doesn't work. Love finds the one sheep. Mothers would go to hell first. So I, I think that's the problem with it is it's, it's, it's our intellectual games we like to play that are, that avoid love. And how it would transform the question. That's that's kind of where I'm at now. Well, okay. The, the reason I put it this way is this this is the problem that I ended up having with both uh, Calvinism and Arminianism, mm -hmm. is is that they both posit this God, who makes yeah. a creation knowing that either because he predestines them that they're going to come to a bad end, or he knows that because he gives them free will and they're going to make bad decisions, that they're going to come to a bad end. Either way, it's the same problem. God initiates a creation knowing full well that the cost of this creation is that they're going to be all these people that are going to be lost forever. And so if God knows that that is the ultimate outcome, whether that happens directly or indirectly, God still knows it's an inevitability and so God is still the first cause of that. And how can that be a loving act? That was my problem. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Because here's it, it's, it reveals the absurdity of the question, which is, why would God ever let that happen? Like, it's assuming, you only assume that question from doubt and from fear. You don't assume that question from love. And I think God, it, 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 those are the prisons that we create for ourselves when we separate ourselves from God, where is God? Who is God? I don't even know. I'm in a dark place. I can't even. And, and that's the nature of sin to blind us from love, which is God. And I think that's the tragedy of it. I mean, like, that's the problem that we, we're stuck in a narrative of hell and we've missed as a humanity, we've actually been stuck in a mental prison. That's really what's going on. And that's the narrative. Yeah, we've got a whole. Yeah, we've got a whole. In my opinion, we've got a whole Western civilization that's just traumatized. Absolutely. Um, yeah. 100%. Yes. <laughs> yes. No. And we don't have the tools because here's why. Here's my theory because I've thought a lot about it. I grew up in a white Western. I'm white and Western male. I was. I'm went to theology. And for those of, and for those of you for you know because this is uh, we're just listening to this. Let me just affirm that Jonathan really is white. <laughs> I'm very white. Yeah, you're very white. White hair. Yeah, very white. Yes. <laughs> and I have white hair. Yes. Yes, I have white hair. Um, 
<laughs> so I grew up under that premise and I realized it traumatized me. You know, that's part of what we talked about on our podcast is that the, the, yeah. the, the Western version of Christianity traumatizes people. And I just raised my hand and said, I'm not doing that anymore. I, like I tried to go back to church for probably 10 years and I realized, yeah, I wanted to, you know, be, it was, I needed to remove myself from that energy because it's real. it's essentially, um, it's, it's antithetical to real a free mind. There's no, like you, you know, and I, when talk, I there's no thinking outside the box. Yeah. And sometimes do, when I go by, well, sometimes when I go by, you know, like a big fundamentalist kind of church, mm-hmm. I used to think to myself, how can all those people in there really believe that? And now mm-hmm. when I drive mm-hmm. by, I think there's probably a lot of people in there that don't really believe that. I did. They're, they're in. <laughs> yeah. There are people like you that are in there. And then I think to myself, I bet there are people that are in that fundamentalist church that are listening to my podcast or listening to your podcast or listening to other podcasts that are helping them. They may not have left that institutional expression of church, but Mm -hmm. in their mind, if you think about, if you look to see what are they reading, what are they thinking about? What podcast are they listening to? They're pushing the boundaries of that. Yes. Well, there's a whole community of gatekeepers. Like 12 years ago, when the emergent church came out, the gatekeepers came out in full force. When Brian McLaren released his book, it was like an onslaught because everybody was blogging, mm-hmm. everybody was communicating on their blogs. And it was, and that's sort of the reverberation of that question what happens if you go outside the box? And I think because of social media, the box is basically gone now. I don't think the box. Yeah, even, gone. and even, but the gatekeepers could, didn't succeed. Well, they, I mean, yes, maybe they, they did lost. in some ways. They lost because there were more people broadcasting than them. They, they got in yeah. early to be the broadcasters, but now if you go on TikTok, you won't find them. You know, there's no, you can't. It's, it's kind of petered out. Yeah. The narrative is definitely changing because it's released. Honestly, it released power from white men's hands historically. And it, and it did so without our permission and it's happened. I saw the crumbling of the Christian publishing empire and it, it's the narrative is changing. And, um, unless Christianity takes real restock on its core narrative and declares almost like a new council, it's going to be really hard to get anybody behind it. Well, it is growing. Uh, the conservative movement is growing in Africa and South America in terms of Pentecostal, more conservative. And then you've got these bishops um, that are fully against the Anglican schism for the for allowing the LGBT community. And, and so there is an interesting movement in the, the more remote parts of the world that's going back to more uh, of a hard-nosed um, Christianity. And so I'm surprised and, and wondering what you guys' thoughts are on that and what, what that what that's in response to. I'll tell you what, let's, that's a great question, but I'm going to move on <laughs> to my question. Okay. This is, my, this is my podcast. podcast. This is, this is absolutely. <laughs> okay. Question 100%. number 10. <laughs> question number 10. Is the estrangement of humanity and Adam's disobedience finally more powerful 
than the reconciliation achieved through Christ's obedience. No. Jonathan, you're shaking your head. You're going to say no. You want to elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely no. Okay. Rich? You know, um, I think the good news for, I mean, Jonathan studied a lot of Genesis, right? When he wrote the God imagination, he spent a lot of time in there. I think the fact that the proto evangelion is right there in just, I think chapter three, right. Um, where even after the fall, there's redemption, right? The, the heel will crush the serpent's head. I mean, I think that's, that's already speaking to God's plan unfolding. Right. So I'm going to agree with Jonathan and shake my head. No. Well, that what I think is interesting is uh, I think that's what Paul was saying in the if you look at the fifth chapter of Romans that Romans, that, yeah that the that the that the that the disobedience of Adam in Paul's theology caused the problems of sin and death, but that the obedience of Christ then causes even greater in an even greater way righteousness and life, and then he goes on to say so that where sin abounded. Mm-hmm. Grace abounded all the more. So whatever it was that that in Paul's theology that Adam did, Christ did something greater than that. So that the problem that Adam brought for humanity was one thing, but the solution that Christ brings is greater than the problem. Of course, it seems it seems to be to me. David, let me give you a a, a unified field version of that. What man created ultimately had a frequency between 60 and 80, guilt and shame. That's where it operated. And it was as an operating pattern, that's what spins out. And what Jesus operated at was 500, probably higher. But 500 is the beginning of love. It's seven times more powerful than guilt and shame. So spinning out, it doesn't take much for it to fan out and explode into a movement as long as the center of that is love at its core. And I think that's what happened. Jesus, if you really think about it, I, I thought about it the other day that there's probably what, 30 big stories in scripture about Jesus and his life. I mean, there's probably maybe more, but that's like 30 days. I mean, he was on there, he was in his ministry for three years. And a lot of it was probably just the average mundane stuff of doing the dishes and, you know, telling your children you love them, you know, when they're being bad, you know, it's like, that's the life giving part that we kind of miss. We think it's a grand gesture and narrative of missions, but it's an everyday life. And uh, that's where it invades. Love has to change the everyday life. Okay. Question, question 11. Is God's ultimate purpose to finally be all in all with all of God's children at the culmination of the ages? Rich? Yeah, I mean, I, I go back to um, Revelation, right? It's that it's that that creation being redeemed and everything coming together. It, it's it's spelled out very explicitly in, in scripture. So you would see like the gates of the New Jerusalem that that they're always open. 100%. That was kind of, it, it, I don't know when, when you all first, first realized that, but I always thought, I guess I was sort of scared by the book of Revelation because I thought it ended with the people in the book of, they didn't have their names in the book of life, so they're mm. throwing the lake of fire and, and then they're done yeah. forever. But then, you know, you almost are too scared to, to keep on reading, but then the new Jerusalem comes down and then there are those 
those gates are always open. And there was all these people that were streaming in and there's the leaves for the healing of the nations. And then now there are these people that are outside of the gates and the gates are always open. And so it's a, it's a much more hopeful ending uh, to that picture than I, I guess I first heard about when I was first told about the book of revelation. Yeah. That was yeah. my answer. The gates are open. Yeah. That, that to me made the most sense. Love yeah, is always like Brad, open. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brad Jerzak's book, uh, her gates will never be shut. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the most elegant explication of that, uh, of that, yeah. of that image. Yeah. Um, this is okay. Question uh, number 12. Could God be completely good if God sets into motion a creation which exposes God to no ultimate threat to God's existence, but exposes God's children to the ultimate threat of uncertain ultimate destinies? Can God be considered good if God launches creation without knowing whether or not all will finally come to a good end? Well, I believe everybody's going to come to good. And I, I say all these with a conviction of it's based on love. The end game is love wins, and so yeah, God does. I guess this is a way of getting kind of getting more back a little bit back into that question of the open theism, you know, because mm-hmm. like that. I think Rich, you were talking about that. Maybe God, because that's what the open theists kind of want to say is that that God makes a creation that and an act of love that is free, and not even God knows how it's going to turn out. Yeah. Here's here's another theological question to sort of counter that. It, it's who would choose hell? It's a more legitimate question. Like we think people don't want to go to heaven. In all when they're completely aware, I, but who would choose the antithesis of that? I don't think anybody would. Well, the 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 image that keeps coming to mind to me is kind of like a Dr. Frankenstein who <laughs> calls forward this creation yeah. that uh, you know, he wants it to live, but he doesn't know, have any idea what it's going to do or what its life is going to be like. And so the idea that God would just kind of throw into existence this creation in an open theism, if if it's truly open, that means that God doesn't know how it's going to turn out, right? If it's open. So if it's well, open the that goes back to Alan Watts's dream of life idea, which is God is having a dream. And then at the end wakes up and goes, Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, if, if you do the, what I've thought is, so if open theism is truly open, mm-hmm. then it would be open to everything from everybody ultimately being saved. Right. Mm-hmm. That could happen. Yeah. But it would also, everybody could ultimately be lost mm-hmm. if it's open. Okay. So, so God could make the creation and everybody descend into some kind of chaos of hell that's finally unredeemable. Mm-hmm. And then, in order for yeah, God to be radically, to be, to be truly, to, 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 to not be the puppeteer, they, they're right. willing to, 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 to die on that hill that says everybody could reject the Lord in order to give him that non-controlling kind of perspective. Right? Yeah. Isn't that silly? It's, well... And so that that to me, it borders on irresponsibility at best. <laughs> yes, you know that does seem a little uh, irresponsible to the um, 
I always I, when I use metaphors, I always come up with metaphors of parents and little children, and I kind of imagine these little kids, you know, and they're in the back seat of the car and they're on this long journey, and they say to mommy and daddy, "Where are we going?" And said, mommy and daddy say, "Well, we're going on a long we're going on a long long journey," and uh, and then the children say, "Well, when will we get there?" And then mommy and daddy say, "Well, we don't know if we'll ever get there." Um, mommy and daddy are going to get there if you all are good you might get there. I, well, mommy and daddy want you to get there, but we don't know if you're going to make it or not. Well, <laughs> what does the kid do? Yeah. You know, the kid can't get out of the car, doesn't know, uh, mommy and daddy don't even know if I'm going to make it or not. They David, want me to. That's the Baptist story growing up. <laughs> That is. That's the Baptist story. You don't know if you're going to make it. That's the reality of it. When hell exists is a construct that's dependent upon how you act. You don't know if you're going to make it. <laughs> yeah. Mommy and dad. Now, mommy and daddy are going to make it for sure. Yeah. We're going to get there. They that isn't the question. Well, in this, you know, in, in this way of yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. You know, no, I God, get your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That God is not. God is not entering into any kind of existential threat in creation. Right. God's not saying, you know what? Okay, I'm going to make this creation. If it doesn't turn out good, then I could cease to exist. It's well, that the question is, I'm going to make this creation. To... And if it doesn't turn out right, that there are these other people that can have a bad experience, but I'm going to be good no matter what. It, I don't know what's going to happen to them. It's like you said, you don't want to follow a God that's a jerk in the end. You know, it, like what's the story that we all celebrate? Because if one person doesn't celebrate, did we win? Did or what was? Is that the the fullest expression of love? And I think right, the, fullest, the fullest expression of love is when everybody is restored. Okay, question thirteen. Is it? And some of these questions kind of re okay. rebound, kind of back yeah, on they, themselves again. Yes. Okay. So. Is it possible for God to preserve the free will of God's children, yet simultaneously be confident that there is no situation which might arise, which might frustrate God's desire to finally be all in all with all of God's children? So can God basically preserve free will and save and be confident that God will eventually be able to save everyone? I, I would say... The answer is yes, and it's kind of a new answer for me that we live in a multiverse where every moment, whatever way we go, we're experiencing that version of the multiverse and they all exist. Um, and God preserves my right to do whatever I want because grace exists, uh, but the end result is still the same. I'm going to be restored. All right. From the multiverse, from Jonathan's multiverse to you, Rich. <laughs> I would, I would say, um, I would say I would want to agree with it, but I'd love for you to flesh out how that intellectual process happens for that person coming back. Let's say that person, um, does need to spend some time an eon, if you would, um, getting yeah. drawn back to the Lord. What does that process look like in terms of God's drawing versus their own, um, coming to that being like, you know what I'm saying, right? That's the, that's the idea of synergism and monergism, right? Monergism says the Holy Spirit is the one that does all the work drawing you, as a Calvinist would say, a synergism yeah. would say, my faith 
my experiences as well as God's spirit are bringing that together, right? So tell me how you would flesh that out. Because I mean, I think it's a rhetorical question. I think we're all going to affirm it. Yes. But how would you flesh that out? Well, this was the, this, I had, I had this problem figuring this one out. It was, it was actually David Bentley Hart that kind of gave me the, the language for it. But what he's, he made the argument that if, if, um, if a being is actually oriented towards the transcendental good mm-hmm. as the ultimate fulfillment of its, you know, existence, then all you have to do is just keep being with that person as they keep experiencing just the the result of the decisions that they make. So you just keep letting them make the decisions. It it feels very ther- like a, like a therapist would just be saying, mm-hmm. "Well, how's that going mm-hmm. for you?" Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how what was that experience like? What did you learn from that? And you know, imagine if you have a therapist that can work with you, you know, forever. <laughs> that, yeah. That that finally the therapist doesn't have to really. All the therapist has to do is just keep asking you, "Well, how's that going for you? What are you learning? What are you learning from that?" But in this case, the therapist is God, and what God knows is that at the core of that of that individual of that person is is the orientation towards the good. But but God, the therapist, wants that person to finally make that discovery on their own as they are having a real and true experience, but not to force it on them. So I think well, you're onto something. John, John, let me just interject. And it's not more the unified field, but it's more like meditation. So in, in meditation, I think the contemplatives did this too a lot, um, David. There's this place where you can be in that stillness with God, right? The idea of contemplation mm-hmm. and like what you know Father Keating or um, Thomas Merton would have done and what meditation folks try to do is they try to either focus on breath work or a mantra. And as they start off, they get all these thoughts in their head and it kind of distracts them. And then all, all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about the dishes in my, 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 my birthday. And then you go back to the mantra. And as you do it more and more and more, as you focus on like on a contemplative, let's say a set of meditations, like Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, right? And you do that breathing in and breathing out. What you end up finding is that gap of, of, of loss of thought starts to get smaller and smaller and you find yourself in this zone of just nothingness and you wake and you look around and next thing you know, it's been 20 minutes and you've been doing contemplative prayer and or meditation and you didn't even know where you were and where the time went. That I think is where we're going with this because because we need, we, we need people to have a, a visceral understanding of what that looks like. We had a guy on our podcast who helped us understand that you are not your thoughts we always think that we are our thoughts, we're, we're, our, our heads are, are, are spinning, our minds are elsewhere, we're a bloody mess. And he made a very clear couple exercises that helps us understand that. In your case, I think, and you have to start with a, with a Pelagian reference point or an Eastern reference point in that we're always leaning towards the good, right? Our, our hearts are, are, are generally heading in the good direction as opposed to we're fully broken and depraved, right? So I think that's why David Hartley, David Bentley Hart likes that idea. But I think in a practical framework, if we think about meditation and how we get better and better at it, and we don't get distracted as much, then each of those iterative times, we're getting better and better and more and more in tune with God. I think, I think, I think that was an example that came to my mind, Jonathan. Well, yeah, and you, well, I was just thinking too that you know that if you t- if you think about people ask me, well, so you don't believe in hell, and I said, well, 
I don't believe that hell lasts forever. I think it finally has a restorative purpose, but I do believe in that the the outer darkness and the furnace of fire that cause weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what happens, however God constructs those experiences, they're somehow they they somehow illuminate us more and more to the true state of who we are and the illusions and the falsehoods that we continue to cling to. And finally, the the more that you're in that sort of contemplative state where you can't be distracted from the truth mm-hmm, of your mm-hmm. existence, that that it will finally result in uh, sort of what happened to the par- in the parable of the prodigal son. It will finally be like, why am I continuing to do this to myself? Mm-hmm. Yes, some type of waking up like that will happen. Not to go unified field on us again, but that's essentially <laughs> what the unified we'd field is. Dis- we'd be disappointed. Here's the reality that we're learning now is at an energetic level, guilt and shame uh, are destructive. And they, they're, but they're very teaching oriented. They're, they're there, consequences there to teach you what doesn't work. And because we live with ourselves 24-7, it's almost impossible to ignore, to, ignore that, to ignore that at an infinite level. So eternity, the aeon, is as long as God needs for you to get to give up. Because all you're doing is letting go of the negative energy. And once you let go of the negative energy, your body can move into positive energy, which looks between courage and love. And beyond that is bliss. But you're really trying to get in that band of over courage, have faith. That's what God is trying to teach all the Israelites. But to get to love, which is where Jesus was. Because when we love, we're showing people what the kingdom of God looks like. Yeah. All right. I, I just question don't think the number can ever beat that. All right. Question number fourteen. You still, you guys still having fun out in the weeds? You told yeah. me, totally. you told me that you liked getting out in the weeds. So I thought, okay, we're all good. Let's get out there. <laughs> okay. Question fourteen. Is it possible that the full expression of God's justice and judgments are not finally inconsistent with God's loving purpose to finally save all of God's children? Well, I think they are. I think God's love is completely consistent with justice. And we will Rich. all be surprised who is in the kingdom of God with us. Rich? Uh, I agree. Well, we were, you know, okay. I brought him <laughs> over to the dark side. Well, it's, it is counterintuitive because when, at totally. least when I was, when I was growing up, when I had Christianity explained to me, it was it was something like this. God is really loving and he really wants good things for you, but he's like a judge and he has to be just. So he has to punish you forever if you don't right. do right. Right. And so it was like God wants to bring you to heaven, but he has to send you to hell. His justice requires him to send you to hell if you don't accept Jesus as your savior. So that the, that the, the love and the justice thing were like things that worked separate or they worked against each other. Mm-hmm. And so, so it took me a long time, yeah. you know, to get to the, the idea where, well, no, they, you don't have well, to, you in taught. other words, yeah, I don't have to, in order for all to be saved, I don't have to like, okay, we're going a hundred percent love, but in order to get everybody saved, we got to go 50% justice. 
Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> we got it. We got to give up. No, you can go 100% love and 100% justice. You don't have to sacrifice anything on the justice side yeah. to, to finally get all to be well. David, I, so, I mean, that was one of your yeah. best arguments in your book is the convergence of love and justice because that's that is the fight. And there, it's it's a both and, and that's the brilliance of what you did. It, it well, not only justice and love, but also God saves, uh, grace saves all, and um, grace saves alone. Right. So it's a brilliant juxtaposition of both of those. Yeah. But one of the, the, the one of the verses that I've always thought is special in terms of this is um, in Isaiah fifty five. It's a very fa- famous verse. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, right? As the heavens are higher than the earth and my ways are higher than yours. Now, what people do, they do, like in Jeremiah 20 and 11, they just kind of throw out their willy-nilly. But right before that, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the righteous, unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, or neither are your ways my ways. Now, what he's saying in this is, you've got your own idea of justice. It's Mine is different. Let the wicked turn and come to me. For my ways are not your ways. And I think for me, that was always a powerful uh, a powerful statement in context. That was beautiful. Okay, I'm, I'm, I just looked at my next three questions, and, and they really seem to be questions that we've already that we've already covered. So I'm going to skip to question 18. Is it possible for any of us to be saved individually unless all of us are saved collectively? Individual versus collective salvation. Well, can I be saved if somebody else isn't? No. I, I, I think well, that there's a, yeah there's a problem in that and that it people live different timelines um, I mean ultimately can 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 I be fully reconciled with God fully happy and fully reconciled with everybody that is fully reconciled with God mm-hmm. knowing that then there are some that are not could could well, I think individually, can you be in a state of forgiveness and reconciling? Okay, okay. To God? or knowledge? Yes. Could, you are aware okay, of people's I, suffering. Yeah. Okay. Could another way of saying is it? Could I ever be happy in heaven if I knew that there were people in hell? Yeah. No, that's you, different. That yeah. No, yeah. Uh, mothers would leave the church. They would not stay <laughs> there. They wouldn't. They wouldn't stay. And I wouldn't. I think that's the thing that I'm wrestling with myself. Is I knew a mother would go. And I would fight for my kids, but I want to believe that we men would lead the charge as well. And I don't know if that would happen. Doesn't Paul talk about this? Doesn't he say, I would um, wish uh, if I could save my brethren, yeah. I would I yeah. would suffer? This, uh, yeah, I would right? have myself, you know, cut off. I would, yes. myself would be cut off if I could. Right. Correct. Yeah. Sure. So I would just think that, I, I mean, sometimes I think like, you know, if I go through the, if I, you know, I'm going through my death experience and I go through the, you know, and I go through the tunnel and I get to wherever I am, I think the, uh, you know, my first question is going to be, okay, is does everybody finally get saved? <laughs> does everybody finally come out well 
in the end. That the the my question isn't, am I going to be saved? Mm-hmm. My question is, is everybody going to be saved? And the reason I need to know the answer to that question is because I can't imagine being saved if everybody else isn't. Mm-hmm. So yes. my, I can't, so I can't uh I can't just say, oh, I just, I just need to know if I'm going to be saved. Am I going to, am I, am I, did I make it? Yeah. And then if I find out that I made it, I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. And now I'm happy forever. Well, yeah. no, I have to know that we're somehow all going to make it, that nobody's finally going to miss out on this. I, I don't have to know that it's all, it's all happened right now. So I, you know, it, it could be that there are some that it will still take aeons to for them to finally join fully join the party um but i can't not going to be able to enjoy the party if i know that there are some people that are never ever coming mm-hmm. and so yeah. it's salvation can't missing from the party yeah and, yeah and jonathan you know um i don't know if you've ever thought about this in relationship to the unified field mm-hmm. Well, no, it's not. Well, Jonathan, Jonathan would say we're all going to be um, energy anyway. Jonathan would, would, would say that's not, a, that's not actually a construct. If we are truly energy, when we all separate, we're all going to be one. We're literally going to be reduced to that conscious, the pure consciousness. And he doesn't well, actually I think have, we already are. Because right? there's oh, no, are. Yes. at an energetic level, there is no stopping of time. So material matter is a slow down concept. You take the frequency and you slow it down and it creates matter. Once you do that, it's in the space of time because it will die. It's going to die. That was the, if you do this, you will die. And so that's the creation of the reality. And then once you hold on to that reality, it will eventually die. So don't hold on to that. Don't hold on to who you think you are because who you are at an energetic level is completely different from that. I guess I guess the, the when I've thought about your unified field theory or the idea that everything is one or that that yeah. basically that what happens finally what happens to one of us happens to all of us. Yes. Oh, that, absolutely. Correct. That's correct. So so um finally I don't have an ultimate destiny like we have an ultimate destiny and yes. that destiny is the same destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh so it well that was one of the things that happened to me when when I finally kind of reached this conclusion I thought oh well this is interesting because now that that we we are all one we are all together um that our our final destiny is is intermingled with each other well now I'm starting to sound a little more eastern in the way mm-hmm. that I'm right in the way that I'm talking Right. And I'm also starting to sound a little more like this quantum physics kind of stuff. There, there's this this ultimate unity that all the particles are connected with each other, that we're all, we're somehow, we're all in something that's unified, mm-hmm. that there is no escaping the unity that we are all finally in together. And so I just thought that it was, it was interesting how when I came to this conclusion that grace finally saves all, that 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 all the other kind of mystical traditions or quantum physics ideas, anything that has anything about something that everything is finally unified, that there is an essential unity to everything. I started realizing, Oh, I've got a lot of resonance with these other people. They may not be talking the same theological language, 
that I'm talking about, but it's a similar concept of the unity of all things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, the concept of heaven is in every faith. It's the ultimate. It's just the, the perfect picture. Um, so it, it's natural to think that it's going to be included because that's what everybody wants. Everyone wants a better life. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is we can't get there until we first learn how to love ourselves. And then we can focus on loving everybody else. That's why Jesus started with the discipleship process, which was simply learning how to love. And it's hard because it's counterintuitive to our base neural pathways. Our neural pathways have learned not to love. And we have to relearn that by transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're actually rewriting the neural pathways when you practice love such that you can see the kingdom of God play out in front of you. Oh my God, it's really here and now. And I think that's where we're moving because everybody in a Hindu tradition and really a Buddhist tradition, they're already way ahead regarding the quantified quantum field. I've been, it's been interesting is when, when like I talk to a, a Hindu or a Buddhist and uh, I tell them about my Christian universalism, they mm -hmm. think it's pretty interesting. You yeah, know, it's, it's, the Hindu like, oh, begins that's... with the idea that you are God. The Buddhists think you're no thing. And I think to speak to that no thing, because you and I talked about that before Rich got on, no thing is simply flow. It's where your body is operating at such a yeah, that you are not judging anything. You're just enjoying and experiencing pure, being. pure bliss. Yeah. Yeah, it's pure, pure yeah. being. In fact, such that Rich actually got to a 46 on your heart rate when you were meditating, this morning. Rich. Yeah. yeah. So um, I got, um, when you get to a good transcendental state, um, David, you're at a heartbeat that's less than when you're in REM sleep. That's a freaking special place. I've, I've not gotten, I, I didn't get into 46. I've never seen 46. I've seen 47, 48, 49, but 46 is, that's a pretty low heartbeat. And I was, it was amazing. I look I, I, and I see it, right? Because I can look back at my health because of my watch. And it shows that right at the end of my meditation, because that so it shows between 6 and 7 a.m. this morning, I, I saw it shows the low and the high of the day. And it was mm -hmm. 46. So that was pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. Uh, next to last question. This gets us into church history. And, but this is one that ends up that if, if you, people start thinking about universal reconciliation, it sometimes mm -hmm. comes up. Does the condemnation of origin at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553 mean that the church has already decided that Christian universalism is heretical? According to David Bentley Hart, he thought that was a, that was a kangaroo court. He thought that um, there was a lot of um, misinterpretation of his original thoughts. In fact, if you actually look at some of the things that Origen did in the earlier days, he almost wrote the book on how to find Christology in the scriptures, right? The man was genius, right? And even the idea that he emasculated himself going back to the passage in Matthew where I'd gouge up my eye or I would cut off my hand to, to avoid the sin, I, I think even that um, has been maybe incorrectly attributed to what he did. So, I mean, obviously, if somebody cuts off his testicles in order to be a more holy person and he doesn't get the idea of hyperbole in the, in the, in the, in the gospel, <laughs> then that's a problem. Um, but I think that he was, he was given a really bad rap post facto. Right. Um, and they, they can, they had, I think some of his, um, his, his students might've misinterpreted some of the things. And I think 
what happened at that fifth ecumenical council was was a travesty. All right, Jonathan, what would you say? I think Constantine probably had more of an effect than the, than that council. Um, I don't know a ton of the history specifically of the kangaroo court, but I think in terms of what Constantine did, radically shifted the church. Uh, well, Justinian. Justinian was, yeah, Justinian was the one that called the council. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's, but I think the the nature of man is to gravitate towards the negative when they're in a negative state. And when people like Jesus show up, it tries to bend the curve up. Like Dr. Hawkins talked about humanity is what, 203 rich, 204? And it's only gone up. So it over the last 30 years, it's gone up like 30 points. And yeah. What does it mean when a whole humanity is now in a positive state? That's unprecedented. But going uh, back to um, what, wait going a second, back to I don't understand. What yeah. did you mean by that? Two or three, two? I don't, oh. I don't know that. Uh, so, Doctor Hawkins developed the consciousness scale, and with that scale, he discovered a process uh, using kinesiology that your body is an electrical instrument. And believe it or not, it has one really interesting trait. When you don't tell the truth, your arm goes weak. And he discovered that. So what he learned to do is calculate uh, where things are energetically using that scale because it'll tell you exactly the truth. And he used that tool to measure humanity as a whole. And uh, over the last 20, 30 years, it's come up pretty dramatically. And we are for the first time in history above 200, 200 is courage. That's the beginning of positive action. And as you move into positive action, it begins to flourish because it's a lot more powerful than the negative actions. Okay. David, going back, yeah, going back to you, I I think that as the, I mean, to be fair to Jonathan, as after the Edict of Milan, after Christianity, not only was not persecuted anymore, but actually became the sole religion of the Roman empire as it great gained in power and a lot more people came to that power and realized there's money to be made and power to be gleaned. I think it became a lot less um, popular to be the notion that everybody's going to be saved long gone were the people, the women and and the, and the early church God, God bless Joseph Smith. You know, he probably was on to something a little bit in the Latter-day Saints, you know, they were all good back in the second century uh, AD, but after that all hell broke loose. Right. So I think to be fair with more power, um, and, and more politicization of Christianity came this notion like, well, we, we can't really, um, you know, they build cathedrals and, and, and move as, as, a, as a religion and willpower if everybody's just going to be saved. We've got to figure out a limiting factor here, right? So I think that was part of it. I like the way that uh, David Bentley Hart works it out. He says he doesn't think it was necessarily maybe any a conscious decision on anybody's part mm-hmm. for that to happen but that it was almost a collective inevitability once once the church came be, came to be united with power and then the drive for unity and conformity and order in society um, and the idea that there had to be some kind of controlling force on the masses mm-hmm. and you know basically that that you needed to scare the hell out of the masses or there would be, or there would be chaos. Mm-hmm. And, um, the idea that, you know, that the emperor was running the church 
and mm-hmm. emperors think about control and power. And so that the idea that, um, that if Christianity means that ultimately, um, God will triumph in redeeming everyone, no matter how far off of the path they fall in this life, that if you told, if you tell that to people, that people may want to test it and say, well, okay, well, let me see how far off the path I can fall then, mm-hmm. if that's the game that we're playing. And so they didn't, they didn't want that. And also, I think as the church became more Latin and got away from its Eastern, the mm-hmm. Greek language, that the uh, language, that the Latin language yielded itself to a harsher interpretation when you start reading the, 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 the the interpretation goes from Greek, the Greek New Testament to the Latin, to, to the Latin Bible. Anyway, once I realized all of that, it just seemed to me I could understand that why the church in its sort of its darkest moments would would reject sort of the brightest, most loving mm-hmm. understanding that it used to have in the early days of the church. And so I guess one of the things that's given me hope is that if the church in its darkest moment could reject that in a way, maybe the church now, as it becomes, as it continues to become more enlightened and can, can begin to embrace this. And one of the things that gives me hope is that, you know, I got to discover this. I had the benefit of going to a seminary that was very, uh, encouraged critical thinking. I was in the benefit of being in a denomination that didn't have creeds or tests of fellowship and then encouraged ministers and everybody in the church to continue their own best thinking. So, I was kind of in the ultimate environment where I could come to this conclusion as I, as I thought more and more about it. But what gives me hope is that it's like guys like you who both started out in traditions that were, you know, really limiting a lot of what you could say, um, that you were able to find this. I just think that's really like, to me, if it's happening with you guys, that it's happening, it's happening in lots of other places. Yeah, I believe it is because, uh, especially with social media in play, social media's capacity to broadcast an idea is unprecedented in the history of man. And we learned that from the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement took something that probably would take a decade to unfold and actually uh, turned it into six months. And like uh, that level of change was so significant because it was the power of social media revealing itself to change a thought, a meta thought, that men were could do anything they want. And that's why I think now you start creating ideas through social media and you broadcast it, it can explode very quickly. And I think this one is going to explode because there's a lot of people from the Eastern side wanting the same thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Final, final question. Um, will God finally save all? Yes, absolutely. You want to elaborate on that? I think it's the ultimate reality of love winning, uh, winning for the sake of the party that at the end, C.S. Lewis and Alan Watts were both right. We're all just going to have a big party at the end and go, oh my gosh, we all made it through. All right, Rich. Yeah, I, I think what's crazy is that there are more and more, even though there's a lot of divisiveness out there right now, whether it's political or you know, other kinds of things. I think those are just little, almost little symptoms on the side. I think overall people are starting to realize that everything is connected. 
that um, little things are starting to come up, levels of consciousness, people are being awoken as per one of our, our podcasts. I think people are more and more open to, to new ideas. What used to be conspiracy theories um, are actually somehow actually becoming more mainstream until they're actually becoming actually real. What's kind of crazy about science is like we hear, you know, during the pandemic, trust the science. And we're finding out that the science is actually um, paid for by Pfizer and company sometimes, right? Who knows about, we're not going to get too much detail on that, but I do believe that um, the more and more conversations I'm having are men trying to come together to bring each other up and heal each other, right? Um, mm -hmm. Communities trying to restore things, people realizing that um, fighting and, and bickering ultimately don't cause anything long-term. I mean, I, I, I can swipe and look through Twitter all day long and just waste hours of brain time and exposing my life to blue light, realizing that that's not the, not the answer. And what does edify is getting together, having great discussions, talking about how we are, we are one. We are on the same planet, doing the same things, achieve, trying to strive for the same things, which is the better, betterment of all. Right. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's going to, it's going to work out one way or another. Well, one of the things I know that when I first talked with you guys, when you guys interviewed me, you know, it was, it was more like, uh, Jonathan was the one that was more convinced. Rich was the one that was, that was more on the fence. Jonathan is the one that's more progressive. Uh, Rich is the one that's more conservative. And so I guess maybe if you, you could think about that in a different way, you could say that if that both of you are, have a strong conviction that somehow it's all unified that God will win in the end, that that all will finally be well. Rich, you, as you think about it, uh, sometimes uh, think about it in ways that might still be a little more conventional, uh, whereas Jonathan is much more willing to be uh, speculative and think about uh, like the unified field and energy levels and all that and, and all that kind of stuff. And then what makes that powerful then for you all is if, if we're thinking just about energy is that you're both kind of shining out this true loving energy. And so then everybody that you talk to is somebody who you think is somebody that, that you love, that you imagine that is part of an eternal future that is a friend. And when you talk to them, um, even though they might not be in your same tradition or your wherever you are, you can just kind of tell that you're sending so much love their way that they just respond and love back. And you have all these really fun, you know, fun conversations. And to me, what you're doing is you're demonstrating like here, you guys are Christian background guys, but you're obviously not limited in who you can talk to who you can love, who you can be in conversation with, who you can learn from, who you can dialogue with. And, and then, so then you're, you're kind of living that out and having fun uh, doing that in your podcast. And I always enjoy, uh, you know, new episode of living in the matrix is that I was like, huh, <laughs> I wonder what rabbit hole I'm getting ready to go down. <laughs> but it's all done in this, in this sense that somehow there is this, overwhelming love that has captured us, uh, that has captured us all. And so I guess I feel complimented that I get to be one of the guests on your wildly eclectic podcast. 
and that I get to be that I get to be in the mix. So I thank you for that, and I thank you for your. Uh, it's fun for me to get to ask you questions and to uh, see what your thoughts would be. It has oh, been so um, just really a, a David. We love hanging out with you because we think alike, and that's that's the concept that I'm exploring now. Is what happens when you connect these mindsets together of this idea that grace is actually big enough. And what I'm finding, it's a magnifying effect. That's partly what we're discovering with Ritz, with the podcast is when we bring these people in and we create a space for them to be fully human, no judgment, listen to their ideas and love on them, because that's really all we're doing. And most of the conversations are simply how they heal themselves. That's mostly what we're going after. It is. And it creates this space where everybody walks away going, God, I had so much fun. Mm-hmm. That's the space of uh, where Jesus, I think, got with people a lot. I do. I think he went to the party and he was the one having the best time because he realized when we look at our neighbor and we first empathize and listen and get to know them, then we understand their story. And I'm like, man, this is someone that I want to get to know. And I think w- when we met with uh, Whitney, who does the Akasha Records, we walked away going, we have to do this again because it's a conversation that is hopeful. It's a conversation that we're both honoring each other with where we're at. I'm not trying to change her, she, but we're both attracted to the same thing, which is love. And that's what makes it really, really good. All right, Rich, I'll let you have the last, uh, last say here. You know what I, I love about getting older is that I, I, I'm less scared of, of sharing and understanding new ideas. When I was going through my apologetics, I, I used to have it memorized, right? Not tulip, but just all these, these like acrostics and all these ideas. And you had to be on the spot and you had to like, oh, you know, what do I say in this question? And I have books on Mormonism. And, and I just realized the older I get and the more I explore and share and learn from others, the more loving I, I am and the more fun it is. It feels like, and, and Jonathan and I, when we began the podcast, it was really not about self-help to start. It was about, hey, what kind of crazy ideas are out there in terms of people doing things outside of this quote? Are we really in a simulation, right? I mean, it seems like this post-modern world is crazy. Let's let's bring somebody on who might talk about ice baths and help. But what ends up happening is the people that have been attracted to us have, have really ultimately been about loving, healing, and sharing that with others, all from a variety of different standpoints. Some come from broken homes, sexual assault and abuse, prison, um, parents that OD'd. But ultimately, at the end of it, we've walked away from all these conversations feeling absolutely like we're trying to do the world a better place, that we're trying to love on these folks and share their love as well. So it's been an amazing journey. Well, um, I've enjoyed this conversation. I hope some others have enjoyed it too. And I look forward to the next time we get to hang out together. Cheers. Much love, everyone. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.com. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.